0: Thank you, Simon. It is going to be an exciting joy to be back together again. Yeah, that is for sure. And for all those with preschool children, it's like Christmas. I know. It's so exciting to hear that we are going back to church and there will be kids ministry. And for you kids, well done to you as well. This has not been an easy season for anybody. This is actually my last time preaching in this room, actually. Brendan's preaching next week. So, oh, how I will miss the. Um, <laughs> I'm grateful for, tech- for technology there. I'm grateful that we haven't had to have three months of sitting by ourselves trying to figure out what we're doing and that we still been able to gather at least online in this way and hear God's word. And I thank you for your encouragement. I've received uh, much encouragement, personal and private encouragement from you over the last three months. And I appreciate that. I thank you for that. All right, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Colossians Chapter 2. This study on the book of Colossians has been wonderful, hasn't it? To spend time surveying Jesus, to spend time looking at the supremacy of Christ, to spend time being taken in new vistas of just how glorious and wonderful he really is. It has been a pure joy and a treat to study it. It has been a pure joy and treat to preach it. It has been a pure joy and and treat to be on the receiving end of it. And today we come to the real hinge point in this letter, namely chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. It's the hinge point, it's the pivot point of the whole book. Prior to this, it's primarily been an introduction, introducing us to the supremacy of Christ. And now we start to look at what that all means. So let's look together at Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that your word brings life. Your word speaks to our souls. It, it fuels our very beings and directs us. Lord, I pray would your word have its way in our lives today. Lord, would you open our eyes afresh to see the glories of your son. And at the same time to see how we are to respond to him. Lord, as Martin Luther once said, we are to live with two days on our calendar, this day and that day. Lord, help us to know what that all means. Help us to see that and be molded not by our ideas, but by your word. So, Lord, standing on your inerrant work, will your word go forward today? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of my favorite DVD box sets of all time is the box set called the Pacific. It follows the story in this box set of a US Marine Corps time in World War II when they were fighting together in the Pacific part of the world. I remember the first time I saw it, I was taken aback and amazed because most of my history has obviously been European history in World War II. And to learn more about how the fight was over in this side of the world, I was simply astounded and amazed. And so when I got given that box set by my wife many years ago, I was thrilled to watch it. And I'll never forget episode three, because in episode three, we're introduced to a man called John Bassalone. And John Bassalone is to be awarded the U.S. Medal of Honor for the way he has fought in the Guadalcanal. And in the series, you get to see how he is fought. You get to see his bravery and courage, the way he gives up so much for his men and saves hundreds of lives as he does so. And because of his bravery in the Guadalcanal, in episode three, you discover that President Roosevelt has chosen John to be the bearer of this award, the highest award you can get in US military. The challenge is John Bassalone behind the scenes is also a drinker a Flanderer and a street fighter. So his captain calls him in the night before he's about to get given this award and says, son, this is the highest honor our country can award on a serviceman. So from now on, try to act like it is yours. His premise is you have been given a great honor, a great medal of honor. You're going to receive it. But from now on, you can't conduct yourself like you did before. John, there's going to have to be changes. And so as you wear that medal on your chest from here on in, live in a manner worthy of that medal that you've been given. Something's going to have to change. And for tomorrow, live in a manner worthy of the medal that you are going to get given. You know, in headline and in sentiment, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is also saying to us here as well. It's in the opening chapter of Colossians, the Apostle Paul is touring us around the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He's helping us see that Jesus Christ is supreme in personhood. He is the image of the invisible God, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus isn't just another person. He is God incarnate himself. He is supreme in personhood. And he is also supreme in creation. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything has been made by him, both invisible and invisible. Everything is sustained by him. The reason why you're breathing even now is because he's sustaining you. And he's also supreme in the church. He is the head of the body, his church. He is the ultimate pastor. He is the ultimate king. He is the ultimate lord of all. For one day, every knee will bow to him as king of kings and lord of lords. And likewise, he is supreme in reconciliation. By his grace and for his glory, he has changed your life. He came after you on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And he gave you life and that in abundance. And so what Paul wants us to see is having prayed for us then in chapter 1 verse 10 that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In these two verses then he says having prayed and having displayed to you Christ so now walk in that manner worthy of the Lord. Live your life in a manner worthy of him. For you've been given a a medal far greater than the U.S. Medal of Honor. You've been given Christ. And so now walk in a manner worthy of the one you represent. You see, what we have here then, in these two verses in a nutshell, is the walk of new life. And so if you want a title for this morning, I've called it the walk of new life. And really we're going to examine what Paul has to tell us in these verses about this walk. And my friends, I want us all to be leaning in. I want us all to be paying careful attention. Because this is the walk that we have signed up for. This is the walk that we are to give our lives to. If you have taken Jesus Christ as your Lord, this is your call. We all have a high and holy calling on our lives. And it is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And right here, the Apostle Paul pulls the curtains back then on what that all means. What that looks like. By the grace of God and for the glory of God. Four points in this morning, and this is the first about this walk. Number one, this walk is a new birth walk. It's not just any walk, it is a new birth walk. Look again at verse 6. It says, therefore, i.e. in light of everything I've already told you, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so... Walk in Him. See, right at the start of these verses, then, Paul wants to deliberately draw our attention to the manner in which we were saved, the manner in which we became Christians, and the manner in which we became Christians is that we received Christ, did we not? He was a gift. We received Him. The manner of our great salvation is that we simply received it. You see, Paul has already done a fantastic job of helping us see how this all works and how it all means in verses 21 and 22. Because in those two verses of chapter 1, he's already outlined for us our great story of salvation. In verse 21 he says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He's helping us see that's your story, that's my story. We were down the mine. We are alienated from God. We were hostile in our mind. We were doing evil deeds. We were dead in our transgressions and sins and stuck down the mine with nowhere to go. And yet, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, us. You and I. He has come after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He came after us and saved us and pulled us out so that now, by the grace of God, we can be presented to the Lord as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What did you bring to your salvation? Uh, You were stuck down the mine. What has he brought? Everything else. What did you do? Well, I just received it. Exactly. Exactly. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is all a wonderful gift of grace. Your salvation has simply been received. And then his whole point in this section is this. The manner then in which you were saved, which is all of grace, is the manner then which we are now to walk. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, which is all by grace, so walk in him. The link words are as and so. And the point is, both the walk and salvation is all of grace. My friends, this point is profound and vital that we understand it. And I think sadly for so many Christians, we don't understand it. We think that salvation is all of grace. The whole thing is all of grace, but now I've become a Christian, now it's all about my works. It's all about what I need to do. And if I'm going well, God will be impressed with me. If I'm going badly, he probably won't. If I'm doing well in my life, he will approve of me. If I don't, he will probably you know, pull himself away from me. We can so easily get into the impression that I'm saved by grace, but now I live by works. And what the Apostle Paul wants to help us see is, no, you are saved by grace and now you walk by grace. It's the same thing, past, present, and future. It's all by his grace. The manner in which you are saved is now the manner in which you walk. You know, a few weeks ago when I was helping you see this, I quoted John Piper. and I couldn't help but want to give you the same quote today. This quote was like a small child trying to be picked for soccer practice at the end of the day. I couldn't help but avoid it. I needed to give it to you. It is so good. This is what he says. He says, it is by grace we are saved through faith, not of ourselves, for it is the gift of God. But the heart that is full of faith will always overflow in attitudes and actions very different from those which flow from unbelief. Therefore, our deeds will testify truly to the genuineness or absence of faith. And that reality is in no way inconsistent to us being saved through faith alone. But, oh, this is very good, it's good. But we must understand that this reality does not mean that we in any way earn our salvation. No. Our deeds do not earn. They exhibit our salvation. Our deeds are not the merit of our righteousness. They are the mark of our new life in Christ. And our deeds are not sufficient to deserve God's favour, but they do demonstrate our faith. For we must always keep that distinction clear in our mind regarding our attitudes and actions. Listen. They do not earn, they exhibit. They do not merit, they mark. They do not deserve, they demonstrate. That is Christian gold right there. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't now live by works. No. This walk that we have been called to, it never earns our salvation. It simply exhibits what Christ has done. Our walk for the Lord does not merit our salvation. No, it simply marks what he has done. Our walk for the Lord does not position us to deserve his forgiveness and adoption and redemption. No, it simply demonstrates. It simply demonstrates what he's done. And that is exactly what Paul wants to point us to here. So what Paul is teaching us here is the importance of being grace-motivated. It's a phrase we use a lot at Sovereign Grace at different times. When we say, hey, we want to be grace motivated. And sometimes you may be thinking, what on earth do they mean? What we mean is this. We want us to be motivated. Paul is going to call us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And given all that he is in his supremacy and glory and majesty, given all that he is and all he's done for us, we want to be motivated to live for him, right? But we want to be grace motivated. Because we need to understand my walk does not earn my salvation, it simply exhibits it. My walk does not merit my salvation, it simply marks it. My walk does not position me to deserve my salvation, it simply demonstrates what he's done. So we're motivated, but we're grace motivated. Understanding my walk does not add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Past, present and future, Jesus has paid it all. My friends, it's then when we understand that, that our walk will become a delight and not just a duty. It's then that we will desire to walk for him, amazed by grace, amazed that he's called our name, amazed by what he's done and not constantly under pressure that maybe I'm not performing well. Just thank the Lord for all he's done and then walk. Right up front, then Paul wants to help us see that the manner in which we were saved is the manner in which we now walk. This walk is a new birth walk. But that's not all. Number two, this walk is a dependent walk. A dependent walk. Look again at verse six. It says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. Rooted and built up in Him. You know, I wish this was a lesson that I had learned earlier on in my Christian walk. I wish I had understood this more clearly when I first became a Christian, and I wish that this was a point and a lesson that I would simply never forget in my Christian walk. But sadly, I do. I forget that this walk is a dependent walk. And maybe you'll like me, some of you. You see, if you're like me, you can hear about that first point, that this walk is the walk of a new birth. And you're just like, this is awesome. I'm amazed at what he's done for me. I have the opportunity in my life to live in a manner worthy of the calling that I've received. I get to live for Jesus Christ. And given all that he's done for me, my life has been bought with a price. So Lord, I'm all in. I'm all in. Just let me out. And Where do you want me to serve? I'm going to serve my kids. You want me to serve my wife. You want to serve the church, serve the community. I don't really mind. But Lord, I'm all in. And just, you go to it. You get on the job. Let's give ourselves away. Let's give our lives away. Dead excited. But then within a few weeks, I feel like the fuel is running out. I start to feel a bit overwhelmed, a bit anxious about different things. And then before you know it, as you're serving and you're getting busy, you think, man, I just feel quite cold to this. And you think, how did I get here? What's that all about? I I left the blocks just exuberant and excited to serve the Lord, but but now I feel a bit overwhelmed. I feel like his burden is heavy and weighing me down. This is difficult. Ever done that? The reason why that happens is because we have forgot the most important thing. We have forgot that this work only works when we are rooted and built up in him. When we stand on him and say, Lord, yet not I, but through you in me. The only way I can be any effect for you today. The only way I can bear any fruit for you today is to be rooted in you. I forget that and off I run. Busy to serve him, out of genuine love for him. But forget that he is the only one that can supply all that I need. You know, this is such a basic point, but my friends, it is such an absolutely vital one to understand. And it's a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. Jeremiah 17 verses 7 to 8, for example. It says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. He paints a picture of an individual whose roots are clearly into the Lord. These roots are far and wide into the Lord. And as a result, this tree, this life is stable and durable and peaceful and fruitful, both in season and out of season, because the roots are far and deep into the Lord. So the Lord is supplying all that they need in their lives. We see the same in Psalm 1, the very same picture. Of the man who meditates on the word of God both day and night. And as a result, they're a tree, stable and durable and peaceful and fruitful. Because their roots are down into the Lord in his word. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus takes up the very same theme, the very same analogy in in John 15, in which he actually talks about himself. Himself being the Lord and himself being, being the one that we need. And John fifteen verse five, it could not be clearer. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Listen. For apart from me, you can do nothing. For apart from me you can do nothing. As I said before, I wish this was a lesson I learned earlier on in my Christian walk. And I wish this was a lesson that I never forget. It can be so tempting in zeal for the Lord or assumption of his grace that we can just crack on with our lives and we'll all be A-OK. When we forget the most important thing. The reality that apart from him, we can do nothing. My friends, if you're finding that your walk for Jesus, your desire for the Lord, your desire to serve him, you just feel overwhelmed and heavy and anxious about many things. Well, that's what Martha felt like. Instead of sitting with the Lord, she just wants to serve him. And he said that she was anxious and troubled about many things. Maybe if that's happening, maybe we've forgotten that our roots, that we all have, need to go into the soil of Christ. They need to go into the soil of the Lord. My friends, I want to ask you then, does your life and does my life, because I'm asking the same question, does your life and does my life reveal an honest dependence upon the Lord? If others were to observe the way you live, if others were to observe the amount of time you spend in prayer or in the Bible or talking to the Lord... Would they say, you know what, they're really dependent upon the Lord, it's obvious. Or would they say, or would you say about yourself, that actually, my lifestyle suggests independence from God. That I've got this, that I'll be fine. My friends, if your life does not Reflect a true dependence upon the Lord, then what you will find is you will have many, many times where you feel overwhelmed and tired. You'll feel like you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders. You'll feel like you are anxious and troubled about many things. I know it because I've been there. The remedy is understanding that we need to walk in him rooted and built up in him. This walk is dependent We must say, yet not I, but through Christ in me, not in a flippant or assumptive way, but in a way that my life screams, I need these roots, I need these roots, I need Jesus. I need his word. I need his presence. I need his spirit in my life. Lord, I need you today. I need daily bread for my life. This walk then is a new birth walk. And this walk is a dependent walk. Number three, This walk is an unchanging walk. It simply does not change. Look again at verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Established in the faith, just as you were taught. And you have to remember the context here. And the context here is a letter to the Colossians. And the Colossians are facing difficulties. The Gnostics, the false teachers of the day, they've come into the church in Colossae and they were teaching that Christ is a really good place to start. But there is so much more for you as Christians. There's so much more that you can know and experience. And so if you are open to incorporating the Gnostic system of passwords and rites and initiations, then there's so much more. Christ is a great place to begin. He's a lovely fella. But come with us and we will do you good. He's a good place to start, but there is so much more for you. So come on, move on with us. He's just a rung in the ladder. He's a great guy, but come with us. There is more knowledge, more to understand, more experiences. It's time to move on. And so Paul writes to this church, and in a nutshell here, through the phrase established in the faith, just as you were taught, what he's simply saying is this, never, ever move on. Never move on from Jesus. Jesus is not just the start. He is the beginning and the middle and the end. Jesus is the supreme one of all. He's not just a place to begin in some type of baby faith. No, he is the entirety of our faith. He is the whole thing. Call never move on from Jesus. And in particular then, never move on from Christ and him crucified. Which would indeed have been the message that they were taught that he now wants them to be established in. See my friends, there's no doubt when you examine Paul's life, Christ and him crucified is the message that he would hit on again and again and again and again. That was what these guys had been taught. Not directly from Paul but through Epaphras who himself had been taught by Paul. The one nail that they would hit on again and again and again is Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Christ and him crucified is the main thing. That's why when you examine Paul's letters, it's always about the same thing. To the Corinthians, he said, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. He's telling them, listen, there's a main thing. There's a primary thing. There's something that's just more important than all the other things. All the other things are then rooted and come from this. And the main thing is Christ and him crucified. That's why he tells them later on, I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. It's the nail he kept banging every day of his life. To the Ephesian church, a church which Paul himself planted. He spends three years with them preaching the gospel to them and then he leaves them seemingly for a matter of months and he writes a letter to them and half of the letter is all about Christ and him crucified. It's the glories of the gospel in their lives that he wants to drive home in their lives. Whatever letter you read from Paul, from 1 Thessalonians all the way through to 2 Timothy, what you discover is that without doubt the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ was Paul's main thing. And so as he writes to this church in Colossae, knowing they are being tempted and enticed to move on, his point is never, ever move on. Never move on. But instead be established, or as some versions say, strengthened in the faith just as you were taught. The faith of Christ and Him crucified. The faith of Him being your all in all. The faith that He has done it all for you. Never, ever move on from there. You know, that was an instruction that I think they really needed. And the more I've meditated on this this week, I think that is an instruction and reminder that we all need to hear as well. Because there can be a temptation to want to move on. I mean the gospel is how we become a Christian, right? It's how I become a Christian. So it's probably baby faith. Let's do something else. Well, my friends, while I have the privilege of being your lead pastor, I want to encourage you. I ain't moving on. This is what we're going to be about. If there is one nail that we are going to hit again and again and again in Sovereign Grace Church, if there's one nail that I'm going to throw my life in front of and hit with all my might, it is Christ and Him crucified. There is nothing greater. There's nothing more primary. David Pryor the the theologian, he said we must never move on from the cross only to a more profound understanding of the cross. It's so true. We never move on to some higher plane of thought. We simply grow in our understanding of the cross. And My friends, the cross, Christ and him crucified is so limitless that the more you look at it, the more you realize, I never saw that before, I never saw that before. It is so important that we never move on from Christ and him crucified. It's so important that we never move on from the gospel. Because the gospel does so many things. And before a start, the gospel of Christ and him crucified, it, it guards us. It guards us from things like legalism. The temptation to base our relationship with God on our performance before God. Temptation that we feel, I think, every day of our lives. The temptation to start by grace but now live by works. To start by grace but to now base my relationship with God on my performance before God. And so depending on how well I feel it's going is how I feel he thinks about me. It's legalism. It also guards us from subjectivism. The temptation to base our view of God on our changing feelings and emotions. And depending on how we feel about God and how we feel His closeness, our closeness to him is how we feel he must be towards us. Totally subjective. We literally just think with our feelings. Well, that's what happens when we move off the gospel. Because instead of knowing that it says right here that I have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, fact, in order to present me holy and blameless and above reproach, fact, I feel that maybe that hasn't happened. So maybe I'm not above reproach. Maybe I'm not blameless. That's what subjectivism is. When we move off the gospel, we're susceptible to that. Also condemnation. The temptation to be more focused on our sin than we are on God's grace. You ever experienced that? I know I have. Satan comes and he tempts you to despair. And he tells you of the guilt within. And you actually sit there and feel despair and guilt within. When we move off the gospel, they're the arrows that come our way. But the gospel guards us from those things because it reminds us there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel, it guards us from those things. The gospel also unites us. One of the things that has been shocking to me over the last few weeks is just seeing how divided our world is becoming. You know, that incredibly segregated. So how do we avoid that happening in church? In a church that is so different in so many ways, how do you avoid it? Not just fragmenting and splitting off. Here's how. You gather around Christ and Him crucified. You remind yourselves each and every day, I stand with you and you as my brother and my sister because it is Christ that has united us and I'm going to eagerly maintain the unity that God has given us. We may be different, we may be diverse, we will use all those things for the glory of God. But what unites us is that in Christ we are family. And so we stand together and we strive side by side with one spirit and one faith for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh my, what an example that is to the world. What a city on a hill that is to the world. And yet there are numerous things, numerous things that will seek to divide us. My friends, we need to get wise to this. We need to understand that this is the schemes of the devil that we read about in Ephesians 6. They're schemes. Wake up! We need to stand side by side for the gospel, not giving in to the temptations of the world and saying, I am united with you because you are my family. When we move off Jesus Christ, there will be a hundred things to fall out on. But when we stand in Christ, we just stand, bearing with one another, considering others more important than ourselves, listening quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The gospel, it it guards us, it unites us. The gospel also motivates us, doesn't it? As Romans 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. We can go through moments in our Christian walk, can we not, where we think, how is anybody going to ever become a Christian? How is this ever going to happen? And Paul rocks up and he says, Hey, listen, don't you go being ashamed of the gospel. Because that's a powerful thing that you hold in your hand. That gospel, when it is preached, it is the dynamis of God. And if God wants it to explode and break in, no one will stand against it. The gospel guards us, it unites us, it motivates us. And so Paul's point to the Colossian church is never move on. And my friends, we need to understand that's not just for the church in Colossae. It's for us as well. This walk is an unchanging walk. It is rooted and built upon Christ. And then we proceed by being established in the faith, just as you were taught. We never move on from the cross. Only ever into a deeper understanding of the cross. Because that's what changes and fuels everything. This walk is a new birth walk. It's a dependent walk. It's an unchanging walk. And then finally, this walk is a thankful walk. And so it is. It says at the end of verse 6, So walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding. You know, to the Apostle Paul, this entire work then, should lead to a life that is abounding in thanksgiving. The only reasonable response in his mind to everything that is taking place on this walk is that we would be the most grateful people on the planet. We're not just called to be thankful. No, we're called to abound in it. I was talking to Brendan just before, and he was telling me about the, the original Greek. It doesn't just even mean abounding. It means exceeding. Exceeding in thanksgiving. That's us. That's the call of God on our lives. That we would be a thankful and grateful people. This is a theme that Paul runs throughout the entirety of this letter. And the truth is, it's a theme that Paul runs throughout the entirety of his life. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. He says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. Ephesians 5 verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says it again here then in these verses that we will be abounding in thanksgiving. See, to Paul, to walk in the walk of new birth is an amazing thing. To know that you were dead in your transgressions and sins, you were hostile to God and futile and mind and were working actively against Him, but to know that He saved you by His grace and pulled you out the mind and then gave you a walk to go in. And to Paul to walk in the walk of dependence then, knowing that Christ isn't just up there and beyond me, but he actually lives in me. The power of the resurrected Christ is in me, and as I talk to him and wait on him, he will help me and strengthen me and encourage me and to walk in the walk of the gospel, daily reminding myself that my life is not my own, but my life has been forgiven and redeemed and adopted and that heaven is my home. Oh my, his point is that the only reasonable response to that type of walk is thank you! Abounding thanksgiving. Profound gratitude coming out of our mouths as we realize this is the greatest privilege of my life. Abounding, ongoing, exceeding thanksgiving to Paul is the only reasonable response to this walk. J.I. Packer in modern day says it this way. He says, To know that from eternity my maker for seeing my sin, for loved me and resolved to save me, though it would be at the cost of Calvary. To know that the divine son was appointed from eternity to be my savior. And then in love he became man for me and died for me and now lives to intercede for me and will one day come in person to take me home. To know that the Lord who loved me And gave himself up for me and who came and preached peace to me through his messengers has by his spirit raised me from spiritual death to life-giving union and communion with himself and has promised, listen, promised to hold me fast and never let me go. For this is knowledge that brings overwhelming gratitude and praise. And so it is. That's why Paul can say, give thanks in all circumstances. Because he's aware, whatever the circumstances of my life may be, he's not minimizing those things, but whatever the circumstances of my life may be, are you aware that he chose you before the foundation of the earth and he forgave you and redeemed you and adopted you and that heaven is your home and he gave you the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance and he did it all by his grace because he loves you? Oh my to Paul, our lives should be a bundle of abounding thanksgiving. My friends, I want to ask you then, if this isn't your story, if in all honesty, abounding thanksgiving is not your theme, and maybe you think, I don't know whether it is or not, well then go ask somebody. Ask your family, ask your friends, ask your growth group. Hey guys, when you interact with me, would like thankfulness be a word that you would think of? My friends, if in reality abounding thankfulness is not your theme, then I really want to encourage you then to mainline into the three, first, the three parts of this walk. I really want to encourage you to mainline into parts one, two and three. Because if you mainline into the walk of new birth, reminding yourself daily that your walk is a walk of grace. It's the greatest privilege of your life. You were dead in your sins, futile in mind, opposing God. But he saved you by his grace. And that your walk is dependent. Spend your day crying out to God, Lord, would you help me? Would you aid me? And that your walk is to be centred on the gospel. Reminding yourselves, as we looked at a few weeks ago, how to do that. Bringing the gospel to bear daily in your life. If you do that, here's what will be the fruit. Abounding thanksgiving. That'll be the fruit. Because it's the only reasonable response to seeing all that Christ has done for you. And all he continues to do in your life. Now just a few weeks ago, We saw Martin Luther's famous quote. He says, there are just two days on my calendar, this day and that day. And I love that quote. It really sums up in some ways the Christian walk. I live with just two days on my calendar, this day and that day. Lord, help me to walk this day. Help me to give my life away for you this day in light of that day when I stand before you. My friends, with this day and that day then in mind, I want to encourage you, don't waste your walk. This walk will go by quicker than you think. Don't waste your walk. But instead, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. May we get to heaven tired, having given everything to Him, because He's worthy of it all. Let's pray. Lord, to know that you've called us to this walk is an amazing thing. Lord, as Christians, we should be those that are gathering with other Christians, shaking our heads, amazed that we even get to be in the room at all. Amazed that while millions around the world oppose you, we get to call you Father and Redeemer and Friend, not because of us, but because of your grace in our lives. Lord, I thank you then that the manner in which we were saved, which is all by grace, is the manner that you now call us to walk in. We're not earning our salvation. We're not meriting our salvation. We're not deserving our salvation. No. We're exhibiting it. We're marking it. We're demonstrating it. Lord, I thank you that the same grace then that has brought us safe this far will lead us home. Lord, help us to walk for you. Your grace is sufficient. Would all glory go to you? Amen.